Hello and welcome to another episode of Indoor Environments, Global Research to Action. I'm Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine, and joined by my co-host, Don Weeks, who is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance. Hey, Don, how are you? Hi, Bob. It's been a while. It's good to see you. We're back again, and you're just off a recent vacation, so you, you, you look chipper and happy. Well, thank you. I am no feeling good. <laughs> no rest for the wicked here. Um, yeah, yeah we come, coming off an interesting heat wave. Uh, weather's been a little bit crazy here, at least in the Northeast, but I guess pretty much everywhere, right? Yeah, it's been warm here too. We we had torrential downpours the last couple of days, so hopefully we'll start to cool off a little bit. So today's show is to me is is very interesting as an indoor environmental consultant for all these years. I feel like the one area that I don't know enough about is uh, uh, architectural architectural acoustics. It's something as as an IEQ person um, we we need to actually be more focused on and have a better understanding of. So today's show is uh, is really uh, uh, great to that aspect, and I'll let you uh, introduce uh, our guest for this uh, this episode. Thanks. That's great. Uh, yes, our guest is uh, Gary W. Seabine, uh, FASA, FAIA, and NCARB, and he's a senior principal consultant for Seabine uh, Associates, Inc., a leading acoustical uh, consulting company in southeastern United States. Professor Seabine co-founded the uh, firm with Rita A. Seabine in 1981 in Gainesville, Florida, and has consulted on over 2,400 projects around the world since its inception. He's an international recognized expert and researcher in the area of architectural and environmental acoustics. In the past five years, his soundscape design methods for urban environments, deep natural environments, and complex buildings have led to modifications of planning policy and international standards in architectural acoustics. This work has produced a series of significant public publications leading to his election to fellowship in both the American Institute of Architects, AIA, and the Acoustical Society of America, ASA. His work has been translated in uh, into architectural practice and innovative design projects throughout the United States and the world. Professor Seabine has was also a tenured professor on the on the facility of, of the faculty of the School of Ar Architect at the University of Florida from 1980 to 2015. So welcome. Uh, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Glad to be here. Uh, uh, indoor environmental quality is something that you know acoustics plays a primary role in. So I'm happy, really happy to be a part of your discussion and uh, let you know about the things that are emerging in our field that can become a part of your field. That's great. Thank we were you. looking forward to it as well. Thanks. So let me let me start with a couple of a, a question I had uh, looking at your, um, your your CV and resume. You have an, a master's in architecture from the University of Florida and two degrees from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI. The RPI de uh, degrees include a BS in building science and a BA in architecture graduating uh, cum laude. So with that background, how did you become interested in, in acoustics? Uh, this is kind of a, a long story short, um, very serendipitous set of circumstances aligned to move me in this direction. Uh, while I was at RPI, I took an elective class with a guy named Harry Rodman, a very interesting prof in architectural acoustics. And he was building large-scale models of concert spaces, like one-tenth full size. I mean, this is the size of a storage shed or something, and putting all the little seats in with miniature microphones and miniature sound sources. 
And so I worked with him and a grad student, D.P. Iapan, to build a large model at Troy Music Hall, a local music hall that had a world-renowned reputation. Uh, and we did testing in, in this with the miniature microphones and all. That Christmas, I went home to uh, have Christmas with my family. And at Christmas dinner, uh, I mentioned that I was looking for some part-time work because we had about a month and a half off. And my uncle, uh, who was a business agent for a local union, said, hey, kid, come on down to the theater tomorrow about 5.30 and we'll get you signed up. <laughs> so I went down to the theater and I had zero degrees uh, on a loading dock. Um, anyway, uh, this is American Shakespeare Theater in Stratford, Connecticut, a well-known repertory theater at the time. And uh, I worked my way while I was going through school and as an intern architect to be a uh, apprentice, a journeyman, master stage and theater electrician. Uh, and you know, through IATSE, uh, Local 84 anyway, and would work while I was an intern architect where you get almost no salary uh, for working a whole week on drawings and would go and work a show, load in, load out, uh, run sound and light over the weekend and like quadruple my pay or something like that uh, <laughs> at the theater. And while I was there, uh, you know, Neil Young came and sat on a stool and played his acoustic guitar to record an album, Chicago, uh, Cyril Richard and a whole bunch of very serious dramatic actors came and they all had ideas about acoustics and why they came to this little playhouse in Stratford, Connecticut to record and to perform because it had such wonderful acoustics. And so that really set the spark. And somehow in pre-internet days, I was going to go to grad school. I found a guy named Bert Kinsey at the University of Florida. Uh, he had a small graduate program in the attic of one of the older buildings on campus, something like you see a movie or a novel or something about, with about seven students. And he thought you could design a room to be like a musical instrument. By using the shape and the materials of the room, you could naturally enhance the sound made in the room. And so this idea of using these materials and shapes really resounded with me because that's the way the theater worked. So anyway, I studied with him. Yeah, he was getting ready to retire. He taught me how to take his place. And uh, there I was at the University of Florida for 30 some years. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I'm actually uh, very familiar <laughs> with that theater uh, that you talked about because I worked in uh, and lived in Connecticut for, for a number of years. Unfortunately, I, I think the theater uh, didn't necessarily get the funding it needed to stay open. But I'm, I'm interested in hearing that 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 that, that was uh, one that they really liked the acoustics in. So that's uh, that's great to know. At the time, they were doing three Shakespearean plays in repertory on a pitch stage, all natural acoustic. Wow. Uh, they would do one modern play and they would run it like from April through the summer. And so like all the school districts in the area would bring their kids in to see the legitimate plays. And then in the off season, it would be a series of popular performers that came through. So it was a really pretty interesting place. Mm -hmm. um, I could begin to sing the arias to every opera. I uh, could probably do the dance moves in the Nutcracker that came every year for a week at Christmas time. <laughs> and, um, anyway, so on. Uh, recite the words to Hamlet after hearing it 55 times in a row or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, it's a great experience. But, you know, it's a real tangible aspect to acoustics of here's all these actors and performers and, you know, the sound mix guys who were coming in with the touring groups. And they all had their ideas and theories about it. It was like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Absolutely. So yeah. among the books you offered in 1985 was, was one entitled Man, Technology, and Environment, a Primer in Environmental Technologies. Can you tell us about the book's theme and how it might relate to your interest in acoustics and buildings and, of course, indoor environmental quality? 
Yeah, sure. Well, so that book I actually had revised and edited a number of times. The second edition was actually called People, Technology, Environment to be a little more ah. inclusive. Um, but, you know, at this point, this is pre-sustainability. I mean, in the 1980s, when I was putting this together, um, people didn't know the word, but the concepts were beginning to emerge. Um, the book was really a forerunner of, of what's known today as holistic, sustainable design and promoting this view of architecture environment and people as being tied together so that as you build buildings, you try to shepherd the resources and use the structure of the building to provide or moderate the environmental forces, including air quality, acoustics, uh, thermal, and so on. Um, so it relates really the theory, practice, and applications of environmental systems and buildings with people, their senses, their perceptions, and the energy used both embodied and uh, consumed uh, through the lifetime of a building. Bert Kinsey had written a book, Environmental Technologies and Architecture in the 1960s. And this was really kind of a, a successor to his book, taking it into the next generation. Uh, right now, Martin Gold, who was one of my students, is taking the next generation of, of this book and this set of ideas and translating it into an interactive uh, participatory uh, course for students uh, that will be published through Cognella uh, later this year. That's uh, that's that's great. I mean, you said that there's uh, more than one edition. Could you give us an idea what the most recent edition was? Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I probably it was probably in the mid to late 90s. Um, OK, so, yeah. Bob, you had a question? Yeah, I was. I mean, my thought is like so, so there's uh, have, have there been a lot of new developments, you know, that you know, obviously these, a lot of this, the foundations for a lot of this, uh, you know, from the sixties, seventies, and when there was more of an interest on it, but, you know, now, you know, has, has there been a, a lot of uh, updates to the technology or just the approach and, and how you deal with uh, architectural acoustics at this point? Well, yes. And, you know, so in the 1980s and nineties worldwide, there was a resurgent interest in architectural acoustics. Uh, our lab was fortunate to get multiple years of funding through the National Science Foundation to really move acoustics from what was previously maybe conceptualized as a black art or something only for people with magic ears that you could deal with in a big city concert hall that cost millions and millions of dollars, but not really in ordinary buildings. Um, but both uh, in the U.S. and in Europe and in Asia, there were a number of research institutes, government labs and consultants that were really looking to make a science out of this. So we received funding to develop a measurement system uh, that today you could use a sound card and a computer, a, a laptop for. But at the time we had this digitizer that, you know, was the size of this huge cardboard paper box or something uh, to record multiple channels of signals so that we could break apart the individual notes in a piece of music or the individual syllables of speech as someone spoke. And we could see the direct signal, the sound, say, from the violin or the person speaking, and then all of the reflections from the room surfaces so that we could kind of break it apart and study which ones are good and which ones are bad. Um, kind of similar to the way a doctor takes a cardiogram of your heart when you go for an examination. And by looking at the arrival time, the pulses of your heartbeat, they can make diagnoses for your health. And so we were doing the same thing with rooms. Um, and 
as a result of this, we would take measurements in buildings. We would give questionnaires to people at multiple seats, say in a concert hall or in a classroom or a lecture hall or whatever, and begin to relate what they were hearing with what we measured. And then we would model the space first in physical models like Harry Rodman at RPI. And then in the 1990s and 2000s, as computers were developing, uh, then in computer software so that you could begin to predict the acoustics of buildings. And you had both the physical measurements of the way sound moves in a space and you had the kind of perceptions and qualities that people thought were important about sounds related then to the materials and the shape and the form of the building. So a basic science really of architectural acoustics. And this was a really exciting time. Uh, and I would say the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there was remarkable progress in this field so that acoustics today, I mean, if you look at Weed and Well and Brim, uh, they all have acoustic requirements. Uh, they don't even cover really concert halls, but in regular buildings, I mean, like offices mm -hmm. and schools and hospitals and so on. Uh, and it's really these innovations in instrumentation and software that allowed this to happen. And that's that's really interesting too. The way you know the way you've been able over, over the years to look at both the subjective, you know, the the observational uh, feelings of of the occupants of the space versus the actual very analytic, you know, down to individual audio constituents of what's being uh, reflected around the space. Um, but and as you alluded to here, it's a, a lot more than just th this this whole science is really being adop adapted through all of the environment built environment spaces now, right? We're concerned about it everywhere, not just in critical environments with uh, theaters and acoustic, you know, uh, performance centers. Uh, yeah, very interestingly. I mean, so one of the things we found out in the late 1980s, early 90s was that just the way we could measure an individual syllable of speech, we could also measure the peak level of a gunshot. Um, and, you know, because there's a big, uh, interest in hearing conservation for military law enforcement uh, officers that have to shoot guns. And, you know, this peak sound exposure was being explored by researchers in terms of the kind of hearing damage that it could possibly contribute. But they didn't have accurate measurements of the sound level of the gunshots. And so we could then move into firing ranges and police training facilities and so on. And then uh, I had a couple of grad students that were uh, in construction science and they were interested in construction safety. And so if you have guys shooting nail gun, boom, 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 uh, or dropping a steel beam or doing most of the jobs on a construction site, I mean, taking a reciprocating saw, and cutting through the holes in the ceiling to put in air grills and so on. These are all very loud sounds, very close to your ear. And we could use the same technology to measure these. So you could actually then begin to quantify what type of hearing exposure that, uh, say, a guy shooting plywood deck in, in a walk-up apartment building is, is getting in the course of his workday. Um, so it began to branch out. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about it is, is when you start asking people about their opinions about sound, everybody has opinions about them, uh, about it. Uh, whether it's, you know, that that restaurant is too loud. Uh, man, I feel exhilarated when I hear the music in this, you know, amphitheater or whatever. Um, or I need this kind of quiet, contemplative 
workspace for me to really be able to shine, uh, you know, with, with the work that I do. We can now assign acoustic criteria to those types of qualities that are relatively, well, you use the word subjective and, and tailored to individuals and begin to design rooms so that they meet those types of requirements. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, of areas of repose in airports where tired travelers that have a eight hour layover or something can, you know, get off the main thoroughfare and sit and relax without the TV blasting and the PA going and so on, uh, or just a, a quiet room in a, in a large open work environment where you can go to get away from it all and have that private phone call and so on, that these are all becoming commonplace. Uh, the, the person playing a, a piano in the middle of a shopping mall in a central space with this kind of relaxing uh, music environment where you might be able to have a cup of coffee and, and relax in an otherwise very busy environment. So these types of special moments are also kind of being brought into more and more buildings today as a result of this. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that because uh, in my practice as an industrial hygienist, uh, we, we went from using sound level meters and a, uh, you know, uh, the various types of uh, industrial facilities to basically taking measurements in office buildings and, and in other environments, which are much quieter, but still disturbing to people. So it's, it's yes. interesting that, that, that people have the, you know, the, the knowledge about uh, hearing loss, but not necessarily relating that to how acoustics in a building can be very uh, disruptive in some cases. So I'm on a committee uh, for the Acoustic Society that's studying what's called speech privacy, uh, which started out as, you know, I want to be in my office and have a confidential conversation and I don't want you to hear it in the next office or out in the open office in front of my, uh, my, my office. And it has evolved into actually kind of gradations of privacy from where I'm in a quiet space and I really don't hear things around me and they don't hear me. Uh, super confidential privacy or speech security in some government agencies or high profile firms where you really can't have anything heard on the other side of a wall, all the way down to a typical, like, say, call center or open office where uh, I'm trying to talk on a phone and somebody's trying to talk on a phone next to me and across the hall and we're separated by just these little kind of very low partitions uh, to where uh, I can talk, but not necessarily be interfered with uh, to complete distraction where there's so much going on that I can't even focus on my own task. So in other words, the qualitative studies have broadened the scope of human reactions to go much farther than what was traditionally viewed as a private speech privacy, a private office to now this whole range from complete confidentiality of military security levels to complete distraction of not being able to focus on what's going around. So even that for like an office or a school building or something is, is very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and I, I noted one of the papers that, uh, that you wrote in 2003 was entitled Case Studies Illustrating Acoustic Design Guidelines for HVAC Systems in Schools. And you know, and I noted in your CV there were a number of related papers listed about acoustics and schools. Can you tell us a little about your acoustical work in schools and classrooms? Yeah, this is actually very interesting. So we began to use these impulse response techniques and computer models and uh, speech perception studies 
in classrooms. Uh, we started college classrooms because they were easy. We were college profs. I was working with a very well-known uh, speech researcher, Carl Crandall, uh, at the University of Florida, um, who did a lot of work with uh, young people who um, had hearing and or uh, learning disabilities because they need very special uh, acoustics to be able to pay attention to what's going on. And so we had a number of grad students that we worked with over the years. Uh, we took measurements in a whole bunch of classrooms. We gave uh, speech perception tests to, you know, we would just line up rows of, of students in different rooms. Uh, we would adjust the background noise level. Uh, we would take some rooms that were very reverberant and had no acoustic treatment to ones that were very well acoustically treated so we could see a continuum and develop a set of criteria for reverberation and background sounds for people of different age groups and different hearing abilities. Um, and, you know, that ultimately uh, became part of the uh, uh, research that was uh the basis for what are now standards for classroom acoustics with LEED and ANSI and so on. One of the more interesting studies we did with this was in an open plan classroom, uh, a kind of 21st century learning environment where there are not traditional walls that separate groups of students, but rather it's an open room and then at a table we get eight students who are grouped around a table with a teacher who are reading and then another table across the room where there's six or eight students working with an aide and they're doing uh, math. And then another table where the students are working by themselves doing artwork or something. And one of the things we found in this type of environment that was very interesting was that if you took measurements of reverberation time, how long sound persists in the space, as though it were a classroom that was used in a lecture format with a teacher at the front of the room and students in the back, um, it showed that there should be communication difficulties in the room, largely due to the level of the ambient noise. But when you took the measurements in what we call soundscape theory, where the measurements are made to replicate the source path receiver combinations that actually occur in the room, so that the teacher's sitting at a table with a group of students that's where the sound source is. And she's not talking to the whole room. She's talking to just the five or six students seated around the table that are four or five feet away. It shows that high level of communication can actually occur in this, we call it an acoustic room. So you've got the big volume of the architectural room with six or eight tables in it, but they're forming this kind of small acoustics communication space within the larger volume uh, where they can talk very effectively without necessarily being interfered with by others in the space. So this idea of an acoustic room within a larger architectural volume that has its own acoustic characteristics uh, different from the big space was very interesting. That's totally fascinating. Because it's, and there is that much of a different dynamic property just by just just by the proximity to the, the speakers and just just their directional. Sure. Well, if I'm a teacher at the front of a room, and I mean, I lectured in the university to classes of five or eight grad students to mm -hmm. 20 undergrads to several hundred first year students or something, you know, you talk in a different voice. And mm -hmm. when I'm talking in a lecture hall, the student who's farthest away from me is at the back of the room, maybe 50, 60 feet away. 
where if I'm sitting across a table, somebody is just like we are here around the desktop, mm -hmm. basically four or five feet away. It's a whole different type of communication. Yeah, it's a totally different, different dynamic. Yeah. yeah, we talk in different voices. We listen mm -hmm. differently. I mean, if I'm in the back row of a classroom, you know, I might be diddling around and I'm passively listening as opposed to actively listening mm -hmm. uh, to what's going on, where if the teacher is literally four or five feet across that her sound or his sound are kind of directly impacting my ears. And, you know, it's there as a primary communication channel. So it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I was wondering a little bit more about the um, design uh, guidelines for HVAC systems in schools. Could you give us a little bit more information on that? Well, so, yeah, background noise uh, was found to be a very critical uh, factor for students, especially younger students and those who might have some type of hearing or learning disability. Um, and Carl Crandall was the doctor in this regard who uh, really documented that pretty well. I was just the acoustic guy for the rooms. But, you know, they would his statistics would show that on a given day, um, there might be 40 or 50 percent of a typical student body uh, that might have some type of hearing difficulty. And this would include uh, kids with hearing difficulties, uh, those with English as a second language, uh, those who uh, have maybe attentional uh, issues, and also those kids who have uh, otitis media, a hearing infection uh, that basically builds up scar tissue on the eardrum that kind of uh, for several weeks while the, until the infection goes away are not hearing as well as the, they would normally hear. Um, and so for these, this large group of students that could be 40 or 50% of the student body on any given day, uh, the background noise kind of covers up, especially as they get farther away from the teacher, covers up the, the kind of consonant sounds that give identification to individual syllables of speech and therefore comprehension of the specific words that are being said and therefore it runs together and they can't understand uh, as well. And when they can't understand, they kind of tune themselves out. And then, you know, Johnny starts hitting Mary with his elbow or his pencil or something. And now they have a behavior kind of thing because they can't hear that well and they're not really paying attention because they can't. Um, and so things kind of compound. So the background noise from the air conditioning system uh, from sites that are near airports or busy highways where sounds from outside come in, uh, form distractions for students and also kind of cover up those consonant sounds that lead them to be able to understand the syllables of speech. Much more prevalent in uh, pre-K, K grades one, two, three, where they haven't developed the kind of cognitive ability to fill in the words that you miss so like as an adult, you know, you're in a loud restaurant or something and you're not hearing every word. But because I have experience talking to my buddy, I kind of know what he's going to tell me about. So I can kind of fill in those gaps cognitively where the young kid doesn't have that capability, especially when they're talking about new subject matter. So uh, anyway, guidelines for mechanical system noise and intruding sounds into classrooms were part of both the, uh, the lead, the ANSI standard, and, and so on for uh, acoustics because of this. The very interesting studies that led to the development of that. 
I think it's kind of remarkable that the, the numbers are that high. You know, I mean, yeah, forty to fifty percent. I mean, that's that's that a substantial impact in learning. Yes, it is. Based and, on well, that. you guys from up north. I mean, down in Florida, maybe we don't get the number of ear infections that you all get up north. But I mean, you know, Apparently, we had six yeah. kids, and and you know, man, there, there are always one or two of them that had something all winter long. Yeah, that's definitely true. It, it, and it affects not only their um, hearing, but it affects their ability to uh, comprehend and to to participate. So they're, they're, they yes. tend to withdraw into themselves rather than basically be part of the overall learning experience. Yeah, Which, as, as Gary cited, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that leads to the behavioral issues. I mean, this, so yes. this, this is really a, a very all-encompassing big issue. Yeah, Crandall used to say that, that, you know, so he would... Uh, kind of counsel people with hearing issues and uh, give them hearing aids and stuff when they need it. I mean, he was a, a doctor, um, but he said a lot of times he would be talking to people about what were perceived as behavioral issues. And he would, uh, after meeting with the kids and observing them in class and so on, turn the, the kind of corner and say, well, it's actually much more of a hearing issue than it is a behavioral issue. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I was going to ask you about uh, some pa uh, papers that you published, a number of them, regarding acoustical design and sustainable and green buildings. One of them was uh, entitled uh, Integrating Acoustical Issues in the Design of Green Schools, which was published in 2009. Can you give us, uh, tell us a little bit about your work in sustainable buildings and acoustics? Yeah, sure. Um, and this for me, because when I first started coming into the field of acoustics, working with Bert Kinsey, I was really working generally in what's called environmental technology uh, in architecture, which included uh, thermal systems design, both active and passive, uh, life safety, acoustics, lighting, uh, power systems, uh, fire safety, and uh, waste, and so on. So it was fairly holistic. Um, so as sustainable buildings and sustainable building criteria uh, were being developed uh, and implemented, there were many design strategies that were used, say, to capture daylight that included, for example, raising ceilings in rooms and opening them with large glass windows uh, that would all have effects on acoustics um, that were not really studied as part of the development of the project because it wasn't understood at that time, the relationship between sound and material and shape. Um, so the buildings were built to meet daylighting and or passive solar or energy efficient criteria. Uh, but there was a real need to begin to integrate acoustical studies with that. And so through a series of positive case studies uh, began to illustrate ways of implementing acoustic material choices and shaping choices that given the need for sustainability, higher ceilings, glass walls to let in captured daylight, uh, efficient lighting systems, and so on, that uh, cross ventilation, uh, passive ventilation where it's climatically appropriate, um, that these all require acoustic interventions as part of that systematic development for holistic indoor environmental quality. So you mentioned a couple of times uh, LEED and, and other uh, green standards. Um, you, I, I guess you, you would say that these have been reasonably successful and being integrated into the green building 
uh, design and things of that nature. Could you give us a little details of what kind of things people who are doing lead investigations would be looking for in terms of acoustical uh, design? Yeah, sure. Well, one of the one of the big uh, uh, acoustic factors that uh, are involved in green buildings, uh, which has really moved forward quite dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years as the green building accreditation and standards, the green building code, for example, uh, have been developed, has been the inclusion of acoustic criteria and systems in more and more types of buildings where previously it might have been good design to have a school with good acoustics or an office with good acoustics. Now, if you're trying to be sustainable and meet one of these uh, green building accreditation or standards uh, criteria, they require several types of acoustics. And it depends, the specifics depend a little bit on whether it's a well or a green globes or acoustic uh, or lead or brim. But in general, uh, they have criteria for reverberation, which is related to interior finishes so that when people talk, you can hear clearly and that when multiple people talk, that sounds don't build up to be uncomfortably loud or interfere with communication in the space. They have requirements for sound isolation, uh, often oftentimes in terms of what's called an STC rating or sound transmission class rating. Uh, sound transmission class is a... Uh, a rating of how much sound is reduced as it passes through a wall or a floor ceiling. So where I have rooms that could be loud or that I want to keep quiet, I need to have a higher STC rating of my wall or door or window than I would if uh, those were not important criteria. They have requirements for background noise, oftentimes in two components. One, background noise from uh, transportation sources or other loud sounds that are outside the building coming in. And second, for background sound from building equipment and activities within the space, from the air conditioning system to uh, other utilities that are within the building. So they're fairly holistic and uh, have been tailored to many different building types. You know, on that last, uh, the background noise aspect, though, it seems like it, there's two distinctly different solutions for those, right? Because outdoor background noise, you really don't have a, an ability to reduce that noise. You have to re reduce it by design and sound trapping and that sort of thing. Whereas the interior noise sometimes can be addressed by maybe better designs of the mechanical systems. Like you, you have more control, I think, the inside noise. Is that is that true? Well, as far as, far as the baseline so of what you have you can't, to work with. You can't change location. the level of the outside sound, right. but there are today dedicated... Uh, computer programs and international standards on how to quantitatively address, for example, how do I measure the sounds of the airplane or the road traffic or the rail outside the building? And then if I take that, propagate it in a computer model through the facade of my building as I'm designing it, just the way I would for energy use and solar gain, uh, but instead using sound level uh, as a criteria to come inside, you can iteratively work through options for good, better, best sound reduction coming from the aircraft flyovers or whatever into the through the building skin. So that you're right that there's different methods. Similarly, for building equipment, there are also dedicated uh, analysis programs and measurement standards to quantify how loud 
equipment is and how much sound is attenuated as it go through different size and lengths of ductwork um, so that you can study this ahead of time and basically uh, select the air velocities and the duct lengths and inclusion of silencers that are kind of like the muffler on your car, prefabricated elements that go in the ducted air system to reduce sounds in big hunks uh, so that, you know, you're not surprised in the end that, uh, you know, I did all this work and the air conditioning is too loud or man, the train really keeps me awake all night long or something. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of effort being done now, obviously, to get to on transportation, uh, specifically uh, electric cars. Uh, it's it, it, it sometimes a sound serves as a warning of something yes. is is coming, and it, it, with the advent of electric cars, that warning is probably somewhat lost, and we're we're relying on different senses, our visual sense rather than our acoustic senses, to something approaching that might uh, might cause us harm. So. How do you think they're going to address that with the, the car manufacturers in the future? Well, I know that there are a number of researchers uh, in Europe and Asia, particularly and some in the U.S. that are looking into this with the possibility of having either other sounds or, uh, you know, basically other other uh, kind of warning signals come when the sensors on a car indicate that there's a pedestrian or, or something nearby. So. Anyway, that's an emerging topic and one who would have thought, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that never yeah. thought to be something that I'd be discussing, but it is. It, yeah. I mean, I saw a, a parade uh, just recently up in Maine and uh, they had one of those uh, electric Mustangs. And, and I would not have known it was there until the last sure. minute because there was no sound at all. Usually you're used to hearing them, riving them up. But uh, it was it was mm -hmm. interesting to see the, the change that's taking place. Sure. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about soundscape theory and how the theory relates to the urban environments? Yeah, sure. Um, it also relates to uh, the built environment as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, one of the essences of soundscape theory. So there were a couple of guys in the 1960s and 70s that began to explore this fellow by the name of Southworth at MIT and Murray Schaefer at the uh, in British Columbia. Um, and they had this idea that uh, sound could form a space. So even outdoors that, you know, if somebody speaks, you can hear them for a certain distance and then the sound falls away into the background sound. So this whole idea of what are the sounds that you want to preserve and enhance what is the noise, which are generally considered unwanted sounds that you'd like to reduce or buffer or mitigate? And what kind of sounds would I like to bring into my community uh, to enliven it and bring vigorous life to it are the basic tenets of urban soundscape theory. The whole idea that this links people the activities that they conduct, because the activities that you go through, whether it's having dinner with a friend, walking down a street, listening to my uh, music through my headset, uh, going to a concert, going to work and making noise as I repair a car or whatever I'm doing for work. Uh, these are the sounds that create the soundscape. It's everything that we do, uh, driving in the car, taking the subway train, whatever it might be. Um, but the idea that there are some of these sounds that are important to people because they give meaning to their life, that, you know, I walk along an itinerary each day through my town and 
There are some things that I find pleasurable. I sit by the bench in the park to read a newspaper, to hear the birds and relatively quiet. Uh, I like the hustle and bustle of the cafe where people are coming and going and bustling because I feel a part of it or whatever it might be. Different responses for different people at different times of day that I can take those moments and begin to put them together to create the total soundscape um, with very conscious design decisions. And there are a number of computer software programs today that can do these kind of soundscape models for an individual room, a group of rooms in a building, a group of buildings, or even a whole city or metropolitan area, so that you can begin to consciously design and manipulate the way that sounds are propagating, where they're coming from, uh, which ones are desirable, which ones should we really work on mitigating, and so on, uh, based on the input from people. So that, in other words, that you try to elicit the input of citizens, stakeholders, as you're making decisions about the uh, characteristics of the environment and especially changes in the environment, uh, adding a new project over here, redeveloping this neighborhood, uh, you try to measure sounds the way that people actually hear them. So it gives rise to a different set of technical systems that are used to measure and evaluate the sounds um, that you can model and simulate the sounds. So we did a couple of power plants in large cities that were uh, concerns of, of large groups of neighbors in the city. Uh, one was for a hospital, one was for a large college. And we did computer models of the sounds of the power plant and people uh, we played them for people in an auditorium and they said, well, that's just a computer, blah, blah, blah. We're in an auditorium. So we actually rented a trailer truck full of audio equipment, uh, put the loudspeakers and configured the loudspeakers to make the sounds of the cooling towers and chillers and pumps and all the equipment that's in these buildings uh, so that the, we could propagate it out through the neighborhood at the levels that it was would be coming from so that they could walk their dogs, have coffee on their deck, have their Friday evening cocktails on their patio in the pool or whatever, and experience for a week or so uh, what the sound, how the soundscape would be altered. Um, and this really helped build a dialogue between the client, the city, and the community in terms of the sincerity of the client and really trying to work to mitigate the sounds and maintain the qualities of the soundscape of the residential areas that were nearby it. Uh, it helped the city understand the dynamics of what's going on and it helped the residents understand like that the outcomes were actually going to be pretty decent. So in both cases, there were, you know, we played the sounds for a week or so. Um, and the hospital in particular had a hotline and a guy in a golf cart where somebody called up and said, oh, I hear a mechanical sound. I mean, you'd be right over there, go with the person. They would listen to what they were hearing. And it actually turned out to be whatever, something was wrong with the neighbor's pool pump and it blew a bearing or something and it wasn't the hospital sound. But, you know, I mean, just to go through this process for a whole week with groups of people uh, really helps sustain a, a dialogue of, of the citizenry. Um, so it really gives a vehicle where you're not just talking about decibels and math. I mean, I'm an acoustics nerd. I mean, I know the math and the equations and the algorithms and the computer programs and all that. I gladly talk about that stuff. But at some point, when you're with somebody's home or their workspace or the theater where they're going to perform, 
these all have very important meanings to people. And so to really deal with it at that very human level, these are the kind of tools that allow you to do this so that you're not surprised and they're not surprised and there can be honest, just open participation and discussion. So we find it to be a lot of fun. Technically, it's very challenging to do these things, but the dynamics that it brings about in terms of just developing interpersonal relationships is wonderful. Um, is this emphasis on uh, soundscape design kind of a new development in urban planning or, or, or at least you know a greater emphasis on it than we've seen in the past? It's, it does seem a little new to me. Uh, it's very new, actually. Uh, like I said, the theory was started in the 60s and 70s. Uh, there have been a few people. I started teaching this in the late 90s, early 2000s in my studio classes at the University of Florida, where we would take an idea that we would want to design a performing arts hall in an urban park and we would i would get a real client who actually wanted to do this and we would kind of look at the whole sonic context for the city and begin to look at how those sounds could move in and shape the space of the concert hall um, the acoustic society of america in the uh, mid 2000s uh, mid to late 2000s began a series of outreach programs um, with about eight or 10 researchers from around the world to present to city planners in cities where uh, the society was meeting. So we did this in Baltimore, Portland, Seattle. Uh, and we're about to rejuvenate this and do it in Nashville this fall um, <laughs> to try to kind of spread the word because it is such an interesting dynamic and offers such possibilities for extending the dialogue as all these uh, decisions are being made. And any construction project today is, I bought 10 two by fours to do some renovations at my house and it was over 120 bucks. I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, so when you build these big buildings or you're talking about a district in a city, uh, it's huge costs. And the idea that this is a way of allowing you to do it right relative to sound and become uh, get people involved in an inclusionary processes to me is just wonderful. You know, just more intelligent use of resources and uh, finer outcomes in the long run. It, it seems like the technological advances and your ability to model acoustics and, and uh, you know, do that in a, something that's going to be much more uh, representative of what the actual outcome would be. It, it's huge, right? That the, the new uh, uh, abilities to do that with portable equipment, you know, notebook computers. Portable equipment. And... The other is, is that the, uh, you know, we usually go through, uh, whether it's with a shooting range or the power plant, we'll go through like a calibration process. So we'll set up some experiments on site where we can have the event, the pump, uh, the cooling tower, the gunshot, whatever it is. And we measure it at two or three locations that we can use to calibrate or check the computer model so that there's this kind of real world um, validation that, you know, you know that for this path, this sound path at these locations that I've got an accurate model. And then if I'm building a wall or putting the building in a way or changing the building from brick to stucco or whatever the case might be, uh, my kind of variation from the calibration is relatively small. Um, so this is a very important part of the process, but they're very real. Uh, the accuracy is really pretty good. 
And, um, you know, these calibration studies really have brought it into the realm of, of something that can be used quite extensively. So following up on that, uh, you meant, uh, mentioned in one of your papers, uh, and maybe a number of them, about what is a, what a sound walk is and what are the, is there applications as part of a soundscape? Can you give us some little details on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is one of my favorite things. Uh, I love doing sound walks. Um, <laughs> there's a guy named John Stilgo who wrote a book called What is Landscape? And he says in the beginning of it, the best way to appreciate landscape is to take a walk. And don't bring a walkman and don't bring a phone. Take an unfettered walk where you just listen, observe, and feel. Um, and so I've written a paper probably about 10 or 11 years ago called Types of Sound Walks uh, for an Acoustic Society meeting. And the first one of those sound walks was one where you just listen. Uh, you walk and you try to gather the acoustic spirit of the place. So I'm an architect by initial education and was immersed with the idea that you should have a very intimate connection through multiple senses to the sites that you were going to work on, that you would experience them in the early morning hours, the midday while it's busy, the afternoon, the evening, the middle of the night, and so on, so that you really got to know the characteristics of the site. And so these are opportunities to take in the acoustic environment uh, um, that way. The next is to listen to a, a space through the ears of the stakeholders. So you take a walk with a group of stakeholders, concerned citizens, in the case of the hospital I just mentioned, and you hear their concerns. Oh, I walk my dog here and I really enjoy the quiet. Uh, it gets too loud while I'm over at the next street and so on. So that you understand not only from your perspective, but from the perspective of those who have made this their home. Um, you can listen via surveys and acoustical measurements. So you, we set up a live uh, demonstration at, a, at an amphitheater that was having acoustic problems, had a band play sounds, and then collected um, surveys from people that were filled out online all over the community within a mile of the facility uh, to understand when we played the sounds at level A, B, or C, what their reactions were and whether they felt it was compatible with their home life. Uh, undercover sound walks. So in a number of cases, whether it's uh, uh, an amphitheater or an outdoor entertainment establishment or a, a power plant or whatever, um, if people see you walking around with a sound level meter, they'll adjust their behaviors. They'll turn down the amplifier at the nightclub or whatever. Um, so the undercover sound walk is one where you're using very small uh, microphones that are kind of obscured so that you're walking through and you're not interfering with the soundscape and you're just recording it the way that it actually is. Mm -hmm. The virtual simulations that I mentioned, the full-size simulations and or virtual simulations in a studio are uh, another. So there are a variety of different sound walks to get different perceptions and different levels of understanding of, of sites in a, in a soundscape. Yeah, and, and I, I, following up also on that in terms of the other paper, the recent presentation you did on the soundscape of restaurants and uh, how would a soundscape of restaurant affect acoustics in that setting? Uh, this is kind of interesting. And obviously, you know, this is something that everybody does all the time whenever they go out to eat, right? I mean, you know, I go into the busy restaurant and I'm talking and I'm 
I've either got to talk loudly or move closer to the person next to me because there's such a din of sound from everybody else that's enjoying the food. Um, or I'm in the quiet restaurant having an intimate meal with my wife, and we're talking very quietly across the table. And so we usually break this into a couple of sound fields, near and far. Um, so near, I'm at the table. I'd like to hear my wife across the table without raising my voice and without straining to hear. Um, if there's only a few other people in the restaurant, this can be done very easily regardless of the acoustics in the, in the facility. Uh, as it gets more and more crowded and more and more people come in, now I have far away, all the tables filled up with multiple people doing just what I'm doing. And if the restaurant has sound reflective materials, wood, glass, concrete gypsum board, the sounds basically get amplified by the room. And so now the far sounds are kind of interfering with the sounds near at my table so that I can't discuss intimately uh, with the people that I'm with. Um, so as I begin to add sound absorbent materials on the surfaces, the ceiling and the walls. So when people talk, there's generally about 140 degrees laterally, 140 degrees vertically of sound propagation that comes out from any one person's voice. So I, if I put this in a computer model or if I sit at a table, I can visualize all these 140 degree solid angles and what surfaces they hit. And I can begin to target, you know, because the people are here, that those are the surfaces that are causing all this amplification, basically, of the sounds in the restaurant. So I can develop a value engineered scheme for where and how much acoustic material to put in a space like this so that you can have the kind of lively buzz of people around you. But the far sounds are not interfering with the near sounds, the communication across an individual table. And, you know, an awful lot of restaurants, they might spend a lot of money to make you know, nice wood floors, tabletops. I mean, you know, to set up a restaurant, all the kitchen equipment, it costs a lot of money to set up a restaurant. It's like if you do a little bit of design and analysis work, if your wood, instead of just being solid wood, for instance, is the type that absorbs sound with the spaces between it or the perf, uh, now I've I achieved my acoustic goals. I've got the same material, basically, just a little different version of it because I've thought of it ahead of time. Um, so anyway, that's the, the nature of, of restaurant acoustics. There are a lot of groups that have these kind of web-based uh, report. You know, the, here's the sound level I measure in my restaurant, in this restaurant and that restaurant uh, that are on websites so that, you know, that you can pick out whether you want to go to a loud or a quiet place. But, you know, in today's uh, technical world, it's very easy to deal with this ahead of time while you're renovating or building the restaurant to begin with. You know, great example. We were actually just at a restaurant in Syracuse Friday night. It's uh, a renovated uh, commercial office space, really old building stock, uh, okay. brownstone, very high ceilings. They put ceramic floors in. Uh, so they've got reflective walls, highly reflective floors, and they have metal chairs, metal tables. Yeah. And what I noticed, they took acoustic foam insulation and stuck pads underneath each chair. <laughs> you know, facing downward. And I'm thinking like, boy, is that an afterthought that's probably not going to, I mean, it's a little bit of a sound trap, but it's like, oh. and, and well, it's, you know, it's, in order it's for, hard to hear in there. It's just sure. resonating everywhere. In order for a material to absorb sound, the sound has to be able to hit it. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, number one. I, I guess we're getting a little bounce off the floor, maybe. <laughs> yeah, possibly. But if I'm sitting on top of a table, I mean, here goes my 140 degree sound. I mean, you can right. kind of picture part of it's going to the wall, parts going to the ceiling, parts bouncing off the table and going up. Those are the primary reflecting surfaces. I mean, the wall or the underside of the table is a, a secondary or tertiary one. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't effective. I can tell you that. Yeah. Uh, last question I have for you is uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your consult consulting firm and what are your, some of your uh, few of your current projects? Yeah, sure. Well, that's a, that's exciting. Um, you know, I, I loved being a faculty member for a long time, but I've completely also enjoyed um, the uh the work in the consulting firm because been able to expand both the geographic area and the number and types of projects uh, we've been able to deal with. Um, so a couple of things I mentioned, uh, I'm working with Martin Gold on the uh, kind of updating of people technology environment mm -hmm. uh, for its new kind of interactive edition. Uh, my daughter Keely and I have a chapter coming out in a book. Uh, it's called Architectural Soundscapes that'll be coming out through Springer. Uh, in the late fall, early next year. Um, so those are all exciting stuff. So we're still active in publishing and research. Uh, we are working on a couple of university music schools uh, for performing arts centers, uh, high-end condos, which are actually very interesting because for us, um, you know, it's not as glamorous, say, as a performing arts center where the acoustics of the Performing Arts Center are visible to everyone who comes into space with all the kind of curves and angles and nice woods and stuff. Uh, in a in a luxury condo, um, you've got all the pumps and the generators that are down on the ground floor that make a racket with the pipes that go up in the building. And then above the penthouses on the roof, you've got all the equipment that heats and cools the building. And, you know, there's like about a foot and a half or two feet between that and the guy who just spent multi-millions of dollars for the penthouse unit and they don't want to hear all this stuff so i mean the kind of hidden uh noise and vibration control and acoustic technologies in these types of buildings are really fascinating to work on in a real detailed way um, there's also today that many of these residential buildings have an incredible uh mixed-use program associated with them uh they have nightclubs. Uh, we did one in Miami Beach that has a uh, ice skating rink and hockey center, a uh, bowling alley, um, a disco, um, these luxury spas where nobody wants to hear a thing and they're all kind of juxtaposed right next to each other. So the kind of challenges with that from a technical point of view, even though nobody would ever walk into space and see any of the stuff that we're doing in that regard, it's all buried in the walls and the floors. Uh, are really pretty interesting and challenging. Uh, we're doing the latest ride at Universal Studios. Um, environmental site noise studies for six big development projects. We've got two urban soundscape studies for communities to help adjust their noise ordinances and zoning requirements as they try to revitalize and emerge into a very lively mixed-use urban district, but they uh, are very aware of potential uh, conflicts between entertainment and industrial sounds and uh, residences moving in proximity to each other. So to kind of walk that balance between it, a uh, couple of major luxury hotels and a jet engine test cell for the latest fighter jets. And then a couple of shooting ranges for uh, recreational shooting ranges for departments and natural resources in a couple of states and uh, 
to police training facilities. And we just finished up uh, a couple of ranges at military bases. Um, so a lot of exciting stuff and a pretty wide variety of projects. The interesting thing for me is, well, it seems like a disparate group of projects that the fundamental theories, the soundscape theory and the people technology environment theory are really what links all these. And so we're applying a common theoretical framework really to all of these very diverse building types and to let the uh, kind of details and tectonics of those, so the details and tectonics of the firing range, the condo, uh, the performing arts hall are all different, but the inspiration, the planning, the conceptual structure, the kind of forerunners of design are very common among all these building types. And so I think it's that unified theoretical framework and the similar types of uh, computer analysis and measurement systems at a very high level of detail that allows us to kind of move very flexibly between those. We always say, I mean, it's interesting because there are a lot of firms that say just do uh, transportation noise or just do concert halls or just do uh, uh, condos and so on. and I, I think that doing a ride at Universal Studios helps me do a better performing arts center and that doing the high-end condo helps me do a better elementary school um, and that doing the urban soundscape studies helps me do a better uh, school of music, for example, or a, a, a hotel that uh, this blend of, you know, the, the kind of different tectonics and details of these buildings, once you see them in one building, allows you to transfer some of those in places where they're not used so much anymore. It's fascinating. This is, this is like been so uh, educational and informative, you know, in the 60 minutes, I wish we had longer. Um, well, yes, we, we may have longer at another time with you because it's certainly, exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, you know, brings up some really good things that I know a lot of our audience would be interested in. So really appreciate you being here today and uh, offering uh, at least a, a good starting point for us to, to understand a little bit more about acoustics and how it affects indoor environmental quality. So thank you very much. And Bob, you want to close this out? Yeah, so um, the, uh, the Indoor Environment Show is a joint production of ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA, and it's produced by Healthy Indoors. Um, we're uh, we'll be back again next month, and we're, you know we're, again all of our all of our programming is available on the online global community at Healthy Indoors global.healthyindoors.com. It's free to everybody, so you can watch any of our uh, back episodes. There'll be ten now, and future episodes as well. So I, again, I'd like to thank our, our guest uh, Gary Sebine. This is really informative, and I, I think it was just a great program today. And uh, we'll see you again uh, next month here on the Indoor Environment Show. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk about these things with you. So uh, uh, thanks again. Thanks.